The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, we have one of the most familiar passages in all of God's Word. Ananias raises a question and issues a command. Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized. Wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Familiar, we could almost say a famous familiar passage, well known. But I hope it will come to us with new freshness and force tonight. And I want to underscore and I want to stress particularly the question, Why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for? What holds you back? Tonight it's not my intention to take a great deal of time to talk about why Ananias would say, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We talked about that last night. We put a diagram on the board and we turned in our Bibles and we read from Romans 6 where your Bible reads that we're baptized into his death. Now I know why Ananias said, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. It's in that act of faith, Bible baptism, that we appropriate and contact the saving power of Christ's blood. That's why Peter said, Repent and be baptized unto for the remission of sins. Acts 2.38 Arise and be baptized, our text here, and wash away thy sins. We sang last night, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. But the statement of Ananias is not at all in tension with that. Because you see we're baptized into his death. And that's why baptism is unto farther remission of sins, and that sins might be washed away. But I'm not going to talk about that essentially tonight because we've already discussed it. And I'm very much convinced that we have a number of people here who understand that it's the good news, the glad tidings that Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised. That's God's power to save. That's what saves us from sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Romans 1, 16. The gospel, the good news of Christ, is God's power to save. And I believe I address myself to a number of people who understand the conditions of pardon that we must meet in order to be saved by the power of Christ's blood. Faith expressed in repentance and upon a confession with the mouth of Jesus as Lord, Romans 10, 9 and 10, baptism into his death. So it will not be my purpose tonight to talk primarily about that because I believe a number of you understand that. I rather want to emphasize the question, why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for? Now, I think there is one sense in which that might broadly apply to almost all of us. You remember on Sunday morning we talked about how to be happy, help yourself to happiness? And remember we made the point that one critical, crucial thing is surrender. If I'm going to be happy, I've got to surrender to the Lord who said, if a man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, take up his cross daily and follow after me. Matthew 16, 24, Luke 9, 23. There are many of us who are members of his body who shrink back from that path of self-emptying, of self-denial, the none of self and all of these spirit that we sometimes sing is with many of us from the teeth out a song we sing, but not a kind of self-denial that we really know. And yet that's still the cost of discipleship. If a man would come after me, let him deny himself. 
And so there's a sense in which, in a broad and general way, I might even challenge those of us who are members of the church saying, Why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for? Why don't you? And this may simply demand private prayer and penitence and the renewal of your own surrender. But why don't you resolve to deny self and take up the cross and follow him? The question certainly could be directed to those who have wandered away. You know, there are some wrongs that need to be confessed before the family. Been blessed with a wonderful wife, three fine children, only one still at home, Nathan the prophet that I told you about last night, of those children. But suppose I go off. And I leave Marianne and Nathan, and I'm just gone for months and months and months. No word, no help. And then I break in about breakfast time. I say, dear, is breakfast ready? That wouldn't work at my house. Shouldn't work there. Shouldn't work at yours. Why? Well, there's a statement of wrong and neglect that's altogether in order. I'm certainly not saying that every wrong makes obligatory a public acknowledgement of wrong. That's not true. If the Lord only knows of your wrong, go to him in prayer and penitence. If you've wronged your brother, make it right with him. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Matthew chapter 5 at about verse 23 and following. But you see, the church is a family. 1 Timothy 3, 15. The church of God, the house of God. House there means family, which is the church of a living God. And if you've neglected family privileges and family obligations and responsibilities, then you need to right that wrong before God, yes, but also before the family that's been wronged. And to some tonight, who perhaps have been in the far country, who for various reasons need to come before God's family, confessing faults one to another, that we might pray one for another, the language of James 5, 16, I would direct the question to you, why tarriest thou? And, let, and yet let me frankly say that primarily I'd like to direct the question to those who are outside of Christ. I would like to ask you tonight, much as it was asked by Ananias, as he comes to a man who was not saved on the road to Damascus. For three days he's been fasting and praying there in the city. He's now told to arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. He wasn't saved on the road. Salvation is salvation from sin. And up to this point he's still in his sin. And so Ananias comes asking, What are you waiting for? Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. I'd like to ask the question, as it is asked in that context primarily, asking of those of you who need to come to Jesus and obey his gospel, why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for? Some would respond, well, I'm good enough. You see, I'm a good moral man. I meet my obligations. I pay my debts. I'm faithful to my wife, to my family, and all of my business dealings. I'm ethical, open, above board. I'm a good moral man. I'm good enough. Dear friend, if you've been coming from night to night and listening carefully and you really believe that, we fail rather miserably because we've been showing that the Word clearly teaches we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and 23. Earlier in that chapter, Romans 3, 9, we've before proved and we conclude that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. There is none righteous, Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, no, not one. This word teaches that morality alone is not enough. For the God with whom we have to do is holy. Isaiah 6 and 3, holy is Jehovah of hosts. He's the sin-hating God who loves righteousness but hates iniquity. 
in the language of Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. And I cannot saunter into his presence in the immaculate garb of my own achievement because, as Isaiah so impressively put it, Isaiah chapter 63, our righteousness before Jehovah is but filthy rags, but polluted garments. I want you to look at Acts chapter 10 and look with me at a Caesarean centurion named Cornelius. The early verses of the 10th chapter of Acts tells us of a man, an officer, a centurion in the Roman army, described here by Luke as he's guided by the Spirit as a devout man, one that feared God with all his house and gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Get a good look at Cornelius, a devout man, a man who feared God with all his house. He's devout. He's God-fearing. He's a man who is benevolent, open-handed, open-hearted. His religion is not just ceremonial, doesn't consist just of ritual, but he gives much alms to the people and he prays to God always. It's at an hour of prayer that an angel comes to him saying, Thy prayers and thine alms have gone up as a memorial before God. And now send to Joppa for one Simon Peter who will tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And there's a surprising note, an almost jarring note, I'm sure to some people, in this story. What in the world could a devout, God-fearing, almsgiving, praying man possibly need to do? Well, watch closely. He sends two household servants and a devout soldier. You know, a lot of times in a military camp you have a low spiritual and moral tone. But here's a devout soldier. And I don't consider it highly conjectural to suggest he's probably a devout soldier because of the influence of this centurion, his commander. Well, these men go to Joppa. They find Peter. He's been praying on the housetop. God's been getting him ready to go and preach the gospel to an uncircumcised Gentile. They bring him back to Caesarea. Peter begins eloquently, Of a truth I perceive, that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Acts 10, 34. Peter proceeds from that point to preach Jesus. And we come to the end of the chapter. And we hear him saying this. Can any man forbid water? You say, well, that sounds peculiar. Should people come tonight and we pray that they will? None of us are going to say, can any man forbid water? Why would Peter put it like that? He had six Jewish brethren from Joppa with him. Except for the preaching done by Philip in Samaria to the Samaritans, a mixed race possessed of some Jewish blood, some of them. The church had been up to this time a virtually exclusively Jewish institution. And yet Jesus said, go preach the gospel to every creature. Go teach all nations. Paul said the mystery revealed is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise. Ephesians 3, 6, the gospel is for all. And so Peter said, can any man forbid water? That these should not be baptized who receive the Holy Spirit as well as we. And he commanded them, Acts 10, 48, to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 47, it's baptism in water. Can any man forbid water? Verse 48, it's baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 2.38, 
Baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus was unto for the remission of sins. Well, baptism here is unto or for the remission of sins. That would indicate then that here was a good man, a man who was moral but more than moral, devoutly religious, and yet he needed forgiveness. But I don't want to stop there. Let's look in the 11th chapter. Now, I just almost hate to quote from Jerry Jones, but Jerry Jones calls the first 17 or 18 verses of the 11th chapter the instant replay. You've got the uh, conversion of Cornelius in chapter 10. You've got the instant replay in chapter 11. Cornelius has his conversion recounted by Peter as Peter is put on the carpet by Jewish brethren. So Peter gives the instant replay. He recounts it. He tells the story over again. And as he does it, he says Cornelius was to send to Joppa for Simon Peter, Acts 11 at verse 14, who would tell him words whereby he and his house might be saved. S-A-V-E-D. Let me underscore that. Acts 11 and 14. As Peter retells the story, Cornelius was to send for Peter, who would tell him words whereby he and his house might be saved. And I suggest to you what ought to be evident to all. Till Cornelius heard and believed and obeyed those words, he was L-O-S-T, lost. Good man, oh yes. Moral, yes, and more than moral. Religious, yes. Devoutly religious. God-fearing, yes. Praying, yes. Almsgiving, yes. But lost, why? Well, friend, there's no salvation apart from the blood of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Show me the best, the finest, the noblest, the purest man or woman in Waxahachie, Texas, outside of Jesus. And I'll show you a sinner who would wail in uncleansed misery and cry for the bomb in Gilead if he or she could know their real condition. There is no salvation apart from the cross. Listen, you carry that good enough excuse with you to judgment, and it'll mean being ushered into the august presence of the great I Am and being placed in the unenviable position of having to say, I haven't held wrong attitudes or thoughts. These lips have not spoken evil words. These hands have not consummated evil deeds. I have unfailingly done all the good that I could do. I have never walked in my own willful way, but always I have been surrendered completely to the will of heaven. Give me my crown. I've earned it. Nobody here wants to do that. There is a single, solitary, sinless life that was lived upon this earth by one of responsible age and mentality, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. There's never been another. And the better and finer and nobler and purer a man or woman grows, the more he realizes, I'm a sinner. Woe is unto me. I'm undone. I want to tell you one thing, one excuse that'll never work, that'll not stand before the holy, immaculate, sin-hating God, and that is that I'm good enough apart from the blood of your Son. Well, I wouldn't have a, sh a shadow a semblance, a shred of hope apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. Why tarryest thou? Somebody says, I'm too sinful. Too weak, too wicked, too wretched, too sin-cursed. My life has been too deeply marred and scarred by sin. Men go to, excuse, to extremes in their excuses as they seek to evade and avoid their responsibility to God. And while some would say, I'm good enough, and that won't work as we can all see, Others are inclined to say, I'm too sinful, too wicked, too wretched. My life has been too deeply scarred by sin. Listen carefully. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
There are none so good that they can be saved without it, nor are there any so evil but that they can be saved by it. All of us are dependent upon the cross. None are good enough to be saved without it. None are so evil but that they can, if they'll come to the Lord on his terms, be saved by the blood of Christ. Oh, it's a wonderful thrill to be able to call attention to some of the great promises. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The prophetic predictive language of Isaiah contemplating the cleansing to come through the blood. I think reference may have been made to that in prayer tonight. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, God, through the inspired penman, said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. I think I may have told you earlier about one of the ancient Greeks who promised a would-be disciple, I can teach you to remember. And he said, oh, no, teach me to forget. Isn't it wonderful that when God forgives, he forgets on the day of atonement over the head of the scapegoat, the sins of the people would be confessed, and then that animal would be led out into the wilderness. Jesus Christ, our sin-bearer, our scapegoat, our Savior, bears the burden of our guilt into the wilderness of God's forgetfulness. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to them that are in Christ. Romans 8.1 I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That's the blessing that comes through the blood. For that one with sin of deepest dye, guilt of darkest hue, there is forgiveness. You say, well, I want to believe that. Oh, that's wonderful. I want to believe that. Can you illustrate it with some real people, some sinful people, some weak and wicked and wretched people in the first century? Yes, I can. Among the first members of the church were the murderers of the Christ. Can you think of a more heinous crime against God and man than that? But all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter preaches Acts 2 at verse 36. He accuses his hearers of the colossal crime of the ages. You've murdered God's Christ. You've crucified by the hand of lawless men. Acts 2.23, the Lord of glory. Grief-stricken, conscience-smitten, pricked in their hearts, cut to the quick and core, they cry, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent ye, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, unto, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38, They that gladly received his word were baptized. Acts 2.41, Who's being baptized here? People to whom Peter had just said, you're guilty of crucifying the Lord of glory. The same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Remember on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. That prayer was not instantaneously answered. But every time one of those 3,000 Jews on Pentecost repented and was baptized, the prayer of Christ in the case of that Jew found an answer. Who are these people being added? Acts 2, 41 added to the church daily. Acts 2.47, people who are responsible for the death of Christ. No, you're not too wicked, too wretched, too weak. First members of the church were the murderers of the Christ. 